This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. In the uh, social studies conferences, in the social studies hallway conversations. Love those hallway conversations. Nothing like one. Top topic of conversation over the last quarter century. Probably, oh my goodness, that is 25 years. Probably presentism, right? I mean, I feel like everyone has, has a thought on it. I feel everyone like usually I'm to trying know. to figure out where we're going to get lunch. And that is my present thought. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, that, that's usually where, where my conversations are. Yeah, but then after that, I feel like you usually go to, how did people get lunch in the past? And why didn't they just use Uber Eats? You know, that's exactly what we talk about. And then some other teachers like that's presentist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're a presentist. And you're like, OK. Which sometimes I do wonder initially when people say presentist, I just think it's somebody who gives lots of gifts to people. And that would be an excellent name for like a superhero who's a gift giver. The presentist. Oh, maybe that's uh, that uh, like, Santa, like Santa, right? That's his thing okay okay I'm like if he a... went into the mcu yeah. he would be the presentist right yes i think that's good i think we should start calling santa claus the presentist it's a new term new age we need to rethink things okay i'm kidding a little bit but i do think presentism is a, is actually a really important topic because it's really hard to see the past you know there's there's the famous book the past is a foreign country right like the oh, idea right. that that it's it's a very different world it's different than, than there yeah, then what then what you experience, people have different norms and customs, way of speaking, way of understanding things. Of course, the technology has huge effects on the way people think of the world. And so when students try to make sense of what happened in the past, it's really hard to imagine like what people's daily lives were like and how they thought of other people. Yeah, no, it is very difficult to do that. Now, you're going somewhere with this. I'm, I'm thinking. No, I just think we need guests probably to tell us about how I don't, I don't really know how to help students get through that except for use primary sources and try to, I really do reference technology a lot when I talk about the past, right? I try to ask students to sometimes imagine their lives without certain technologies, I think can be helpful for just thinking of even the flow of people's lives in the past. So, but I think about technology a lot. So Maybe I'm biased in that way. I don't know if that's a good strategy. So I need someone to help me think through, like, is that a good way to think presentism? Or is it okay to blame people in the past for not just using Uber Eats? Like, I know it wasn't there, but come on. It it it, it could have been there. Yeah. And for the record, I don't actually use Uber Eats and I have no clue why I'm using that example. <laughs> I don't actually know what it is. I assume that this was a, a, a thing where someone drives you food. Yes, that is correct. That's okay. Um, in fact, in fact, I suspect it's probably the presentist who brings that food. Oh, of course. The right. new MCU. 
All right. For anyone <laughs> still listening to this episode, we would like to welcome in some guests that have some far deeper things to say about presentism. And maybe they'll start Uber history sometimes where you could come, they could ha- be driven to your house and give a history lesson. We don't know what's going to happen. We just live in this present time. Thank you for joining the podcast. James Miles and Lindsay Gibson, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of, of history on you? Where are you in the present moment and the past? <laughs> Good question. I can start us off. So I'm James Miles. I'm currently a visiting assistant professor at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. In the past, I was a secondary school social studies teacher in Vancouver, British Columbia. That is like right. often called the New York of the North. Is that correct? Because most TV shows are filmed actually in Vancouver. I guess it could be everywhere because <laughs> it's also LA and California. And I'll take my answer off live. Lindsay, Lindsay uh, you want to <laughs> take that one? <laughs> well, it does have the nickname Hollywood North. That's what it was called. That was what it was called during the heydays of the 90s. I think when the X-Files and other shows were filmed here and the government was given huge tax credits to to film companies. But anyways, to, to jump in, I'm Lindsay Gibson, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at UBC in Vancouver. And like James, I was also a high school social studies teacher in British Columbia in a, in a city called Kelowna, which is about four hours to the east and in the central part of British Columbia. Certainly not Hollywood North, for sure. So... You all both have Canadian experience, and we are probably a very US-centric podcast with a lot of our guests, and then, of course, with Michael and I. Before we jump into your topic, I'm very curious, what 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 should we know about the Canadian education system and Canadian social studies that maybe would be informative to US social studies teachers or other people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where to start. I think a few things to maybe highlight about sort of history and social studies education in Canada. I think both Lindsay and I have been very influenced by uh, the work of Peter Satius and the Historical Thinking Project. And that is something that has sort of come through our work, but also has, you know, been a big influence in Canadian history curriculum across the different provinces and territories. And I think the other sort of major issue that's really, I think, a bit more specific to, to Canada is sort of the history of Indigenous peoples and settler colonialism here and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how these sort of forces are shaping what's getting taught in schools. The only thing I would just add for that's great context for what's happening, I think, in Canada. And then, you know, in just terms of background and structure, it's very much like the United States. It's a federal system. There's no federal Department of Education. Each There's 10 provinces and three territories. Each of them are responsible for education in that area. They design their own curriculum. They design their own assessments and all of those other things. So, and it differs very much. Some provinces will have history taught, you know, in grade seven and eight and nine, and lots of other provinces are are social studies that you take social studies all the way up until, you know, grade 10 or 11. And then in grade 12, you have options to take human geography or world history or different things like that. So I think there's a lot of similarities and also a lot of differences probably. And maybe the major difference is that not a testing regime like in the United States. So there just isn't state or sort of national high stakes kind of tests around social studies instruction. That sounds like a good deal. That's a lot better system. Anything with less testing. It's pretty overwhelming here. Like you can't even like talk to people in schools for like a month because there there are tests coming. Um, and I will I will add a recommendation. The if you if you have not been using 
the historical thinking concepts from the the historical thinking project. We got that link in our show notes, but I have always used those in my classes because there's something to be said for the simplicity of their six concepts. And my students are able to read it. We talk through, we look at examples, they get it fairly quickly. And it does really help them think about history in critical ways, which you all are here to help us do. And so first, before we go any further, we, Michael and I would both like to congratulate you on your article published in Theory and Research in Social Education. Congratulations. Woo-hoo. Thanks. <laughs> the, the article is titled Rethinking Presentism in History Education, and it was actually published in the tw- 2022 in issue four. And so can you tell us a little bit about this project and the paper and how it came about? I can start us off. Like I think Lindsay and I have been talking about presentism for a couple of years at least. And I think in part, we've seen a lot of debates in the public sphere in in the past few years in in sort of the wake of protests since the murder of George Floyd and sort of protests around Indigenous rights and thinking about how history is used in the public sphere and a lot of critiques coming from the sort of more conservative commentators that saying like the tearing down of statues or you know, the, the removal of figures from public spaces is sort of presentism gone mad. And so I think some of these conversations really influenced us to, to start thinking about what is presentism and how is it used in history education. And it's also sort of a, a key part of thinking historically. And it's something talked about by history education scholars and has been for, for you know, 20 or 30 years. And I, but I think we both felt that presentism something that was something that was ill-defined and something that hadn't really been addressed explicitly in the in the research. I appreciate you saying that, especially in light of protests following the murder of George Floyd, too, because I've so often feel like presentism is invoked to kind of normalize you know, racism and white supremacy in the past. I feel like that's what everyone thought that way back then. But when you start studying history, that is not the case. There's this complexity that's always there. And so I appreciate that that would, you know, this, these movements for racial justice would cause us to really rethink fundamental ways of thinking about history. Yeah. And we're, I mean, I think we're totally fascinated. I mean, it's interesting for you to say that you thought this is a topic that teachers have been talking about forever. I mean, I always felt like it was mentioned by teacher and there's this golden rule, like it's this, it's the original sin of history. Don't do, you know, thou shalt not do it sort of thing. And avoid presentism. It, <laughs> yeah. Avoid presentism. And, you know, we, we feel like sometimes we never have an original thought and we are having so many conversations about presentism, you know, and, and we were just like, well, you know, we kind of got to the point, is this actually, you know, is it true what people believe about it? You know, let's get into it and let's see how people have conceptualized it, what they've talked about it, how it gets used. And I remember like, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I was working on a resource project for students. Like we were designing lessons for students. And we wanted to teach them about presentism. And so we wanted to think up examples of presentism and non-examples of presentism so that they could identify it and looking at different things. And the examples that we created were sort of ridiculous, you know, that you couldn't, and we were looking in books and trying to find other examples. Like, can we find this presentist language that we can pull out and use? Or is there things like that? And when you see it sort of isolated in this way, you start thinking, oh, well, it's the same as just what any, what a really bad historical judgment would look like. You know, it's a really simplistic judgment. You know, oh, people back then were so stupid. You know what I mean? These kinds of ideas. 
And so it really led me and James and other people to start having these conversations about, well, is this presentism? Well, what about this? And what, you know, what are these different types? I would, I would love to hear some of your examples. And if there can't be that ridiculous, because we already used the most ridiculous ones. Well, I think we end up like turning to these sort of really obvious examples of like anachronism, which are sometimes is like a term we sometimes use synonymously, but it's, it's sometimes different. But you think of like some sort of modern piece of technology appearing in a film set in the past or something like that. And these are sort of the examples we come across, but they're not really ones that really are used in history in any meaningful way or help us understand anything about the past. It's sort of, well, we can make fun of Hollywood for including some modern watch in a film from the 1500s or something, but that doesn't really help us in terms of learning about the past or teaching the past. I don't know, Lindsay, do you have any brilliant oh, oh, examples? I do need to clarify, are we making fun of Hollywood or Hollywood North? It's very important. <laughs> Both, always. Yeah, I mean, we we looked at, I mean, the classic examples were, I mean, this is what we went to is that there are some really great articles. David Armitage will include that in the in the story notes where David Armitage wrote this really great article, a typology almost of, of presentism, of the different ways it gets used in the discipline. And he kind of found five different ways that historians used it. Like, and I'll give you an example the other day. I was analyzing with a graduate student, we're analyzing the names of Vancouver schools over time. There's been debates about changing names because they're very colonial uh, British kind of names of schools from the early 1900s. And we were analyzing the names. And one of the things that we, we were looking, thinking about our categories, about how we wanted to analyze the names, the different types of names or whatever else. Well, we use gender as a category. So we're using a category that's a type of what we call analytic presentism. We're using a category that exists in the present that if we went and talked to people about gender identity in the early 1900s, they might not understand exactly what we're talking about in the same way, right? So this is an example of just one of the kinds of types of presentism that we are getting around. And so there's a there was a real lack of clarity about it, we, we felt anyway. And so selfishly, it was like, how do we figure this out? Like, how do we make sense of this for ourselves? And, it, you know, I, I think we have a little bit more clarity. I mean, we have a little bit more clarity about it. But again, it's one of these examples where the way that it gets used in society, the way that people generally use, it's a cudgel. It's used to demean someone's argument and say, you know, it's a really simplistic argument. But the problem is when you start unpacking it, everyone who's charging someone of presentism would be guilty of the exact same thing themselves, right? Like there's ways of being able to do that. And so, you know, you get to the point and someone says to you, well, so are you saying that all presentism is good, you know, or we should just be presentism? And it's like, no, that's not really it, but maybe it's between presentism and, you know, and this, I don't know what pastism, maybe, maybe it's somewhere in between there where history gets made between the past as a foreign country and everyone then was exactly like us now. Like maybe in between that is where we want students to make these nuanced judgments. And, and one of the things we really explore in the article is sort of how have historians and philosophers sort of thought about presentism on that sort of spectrum over time, right? So sort of like a very like pure, what might be called like a historicist perspective that we should only understand the past on its own terms, that we should contextualize it, that we should bracket out our present day or the sort of presentism where we just, you know, let whatever happens, we our own interests, biases, what we care about now is all that matters, right? And so obviously it's somewhere in between, but we really sort of trace some of those big arguments and the key thinkers who have been making that for really the past, you know, 150 years. Please do tell. I, I would love to know. So who are those thinkers? What were some of their primary arguments about presentism? Yeah, I mean, I think really you can trace 
the sort of origins of the historical discipline and sort of what it means to be a historian to these debates about presentism. Like we look back to Leopold von Ranke and these ideas of like what it means to do history and this idea that we need to somehow be objective, to de-bias ourselves, to de-embed the present and sort of focus only on the past on its own terms. But it was really early on in the, the 20th century where even figures like uh, John Dewey, but also historians like Charles Beard and um, names are escaping me, I can come back and, and fill that in. But, you know, these sort of American philosophers and thinkers were saying, wait, we're always, you know, uh, understanding the past through the present. And we are always thinking about through presentist terms and Benedetto Croque, I'm probably saying his, his name wrong. So you have this sort of long tradition of also people saying we can only understand the past through the present. We can't remove ourselves. And Collingwood is another key figure too that sort of emerges in this sort of idealist presentism trend that we're critiquing this idea that we can actually suspend the present to understand the past. So if I'm understanding some of the historical debate, it does seem like it's it's a lot of the ways that social science shifted, right? In the in the 1800s, you had this kind of objectivism that we were separate from what we studied. And then probably over time, people increasingly took up, you know, maybe you could even link this to Charles Darwin's idea of evolution, that things were in relation with each other. And so increasingly, you see things like pragmatism, right, which you mentioned, John Dewey and other ideas that are really contextual and understanding that that relationships are transactional, affect each other. So it, it makes me think of the old, you know, William Faulkner line, the past is never dead. It's not even past, right? This idea that really what we think about as the past and right of course philosophers think right we're really always in the present moment there is really no past there's like a some philosophers have said there's a you know there's a uh present past that's the way we think of it. and there's a present present and there's like a present future because we're always thinking from this point in time and so when we're doing that it quotes like that kind of makes sense that history is always going to be interpretive right the things we study are always going to be in relation to the present but there's got to be some kind of line right there is there is like a, a point where you're really not making a, a genuine effort to understand a time period so when when could it when you know I th it seems to me like you all are being a little bit more open to understanding how the present affects the past and our interpretations but are there things we should be wary about yeah well i i, I think we're not saying that we should em embrace presentism, but I think we're saying it can be productive and it can be helpful under certain circumstances. And historians have made that argument for a long time. And I think we're looking to a few examples. David Armitage came up recently as well, but people who are arguing for the benefits of presentism and not to say we should completely reject the historicist claim that we should try and understand the past on its own terms. But we also have to think about how our present interests, our present methods, the terms we use. Lindsay was talking about this idea of you know, using gender as a category of analysis, right? These things provide us new ways for thinking about the past. And if we simply reject the present and all it offers us, right, we are left with a poorer understanding of history. And so I think you know, we've been trying to articulate what are those benefits of using presentism and this piece sort of begins to do some of that work, but we know there's sort of more to be done. And one of the things we also illustrate is that we don't really know much about how students think about presentism and how they use it because we're constantly telling them to avoid it. And we don't really go much further than that other than just don't do this, we don't want to acknowledge it, even though we also acknowledge that we can't avoid it, you know, through the fact that we're in the present and only can be. And only to, yeah, to add to that, I mean, and every, you know, we argue this too, every conception of history education that you can have, the present is crucial to it, you know, and we make this distinction, you know, and we want to be really careful that 
just because we're looking at presentism in the discipline of history, we're not saying, hey, there's a direct translation to classrooms. We know that the purposes of history and social studies education are much different than the purposes of his, you know, historians working in the discipline of history. But regardless of your approach to history education, whether it be a real disciplinary, you know, satious or Weinbergian approach or a democratic sort of citizenship approach or a historical consciousness approach, which lots of colleagues in, that we have in Europe and other places look at, that the present is really crucial to it, right? We're saying, no, the goal of learning about the past is to help you in the present and future and to benefit society in the present and future in these particular ways. So how can we just bracket out the present? We're saying, well, we want to take up issues in the present. But exactly as, as Dan says, we, we have to historicize those. We, there's also an, you know, there's an ability to have to be able to think about these things in the past. But ultimately, we're constantly moving our understanding in, in the present of these stories of the past, moving between that, trying to understand this point in the past, but also bringing it back up to the present again. But we're inspired. The questions we're asking about the past the the topics that we're interested in, all of these things are influenced by what's going on in the present. I'm sure many historians, the reason they study a topic is because they have a contemporary interest in in that subject matter for some reason. They study the past as a way to inform the way they th- deal with things in their personal life, the way they think about how societies can address issues. Um, I recently th- thought of a, I was, it made, this makes me think of a book, More Work for Mother, that Ruth Cowan wrote, where it's, I showed up to the book club first, I should tell this story, I showed up to the book club with the whole book read except for like the last 11 pages. And that's like where I was, I was still reading right to the last second. And like the third comment in the book club is, you know, this whole book wasn't made until you read the postscript. And I just hit my, oh, hit no. my, you know, yeah, I just, was my head was in my hands. I just was like, no, and now I'm going to find out about it. But what it was, was Ruth Cohen was a mother who was really concerned about the ways that cleanliness and gender roles in, in, you know, around household technologies really affected her life. I won't spoil the, the entire book, but it was all about the decisions she made as a mother about how she had to think about cleanliness in her own home. And it got her to study the last 200 years of, you know, uh, household technologies and their role. And so I think for a lot of historians, the present is, you know, so much of what they care about. They don't just like looking at primary documents from 200 years ago. They care about something today. Is that is that kind of one way to think about it, that we want students to do that? Because unless there's some grand New Deal plan to turn all social studies students into an army of historians, most people are not going into history, right? They're going to be citizens, though, and we need them to be able to think about the past in ways that inform the present. No, I think that's, <laughs> there's not, nothing in that I disagree with. And I mean, what you're taking up is, you know, that's a form of presentism. So Lynn Hunt criticized, there's a very famous article that she wrote, I think as president of the American Historical Association against presentism and James, I don't know, 2000 or 2001 or two, somewhere in there, some of those in that time period. And what she was condemning is the fact that so many historians in the in the discipline we're focusing on more contemporary subjects and not, you know, middle ages or getting, you know, ancient historians or indigenous societies or whatever else it was. And, you know, there's been an out, you know, I was really interested in reading about some articles and other stuff that there's a, in a lot of places, they're doing things called the history of the present, right? Where they're designing entire courses around the present. Let's start, you know, all of these inquiries in the present. And then we're going to trace these historically to try and understand these over time. And I mean, this is a very, normal human impulse, I think, right? Like when the, you know, we're a year now since the start of the war in, in, in Ukraine and 
what were people, what was the first sort of reaction is people were trying to understand not just the Soviet era, but going back over time, the history of, you know, Russian Ukrainian relations over this time period, because they were trying to understand the present through this possibility in the past. And that's the kind of presentism I think James and I would argue is absolutely productive and necessary in, in K to 12 schools. So you're saying don't avoid presentism. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's an example, you know, as we talk about in the article, there's all of these different examples and there are lots of ways that it's really productive and helping us. So for example, you know, these blurring lines between, you know, genetics and, and archeology span and history and all these other things. Well, they're using modern day techniques to be able to trace the DNA of people over time to unlock history. Well, that's presentism, right? That's a form of analytic presentism. Well, are, is anyone going to argue against that? But what we're, you know, what is fascinating to us consistently, and I gave a speech to a historical society last week, and we were talking about name changes, right, about, about these school name changes. And I gave them a history of the name changes and the patterns over time and the numbers of schools that have changed their names over time. But then the first hand that went up in the, in the question and answer afterwards was, yeah, but when you change names, it's presentism. You know what I mean? Like it came back to that still, right? It's still this question that, and it's this thing that people say, you know, I'm fascinated. I don't even know where it came from. Like, where did this even idea came from? But, you know, it's this idea. And again, exactly as James said, whether it be the right or other groups is that people just glum onto it and use it. It's like, and if you think about it for even a moment, you think it doesn't make any sense. So you're saying we can't make judgments in the present about the past, like not any kind of judgments, not military judges, like, hey, that was a bad decision, or hey, they should have fed them more, you know what I mean? Or hey, you know, so ethical judgments, economic judgments. So it just seems strange when people say, well, you can't judge the past. It's like they just want to use presentism as a cover for interpretations of history they don't like. One thing we really sort of end on in the article is thinking about what are the ethical implications of rethinking presentism, right? And I think in what Lindsay's talking about, about you know, should we judge the past? Should we change these names? Are we allowed to do that? And one thing I keep coming back to in the article, we, we reference um, Samuel Moyne, who's a legal historian who writes about the history of human rights. And I have the quote here, and he says, whatever respect we owe to the dead, history is still written by and meaningful to the living, right? And so why are we writing these histories? Who is it for? Why are we writing them? Why are we asking students to study it? It's not to sort of fix the past is some objective understanding of what it was, but it's to make it meaningful to us to think about what questions, what ways that we can use it to make sense of the world and, and to build a better future. And these things are always going to be presentism and presentism is tied up in that. And it, of course, it has to be done thoughtfully. It's not sort of, uh, you know, some of the people we look to use these terms like a strategic presentism or a reflexive presentism as ways of thinking about you know, how we might do this thoughtfully, keeping in mind that people lived in very different times and we have to be considerate of that. But it doesn't mean we can't judge and it doesn't mean we can't ask questions that matter today. So you're describing reflexive presentism. So you're using some judgment, but you are still putting things in context. So it's kind of like you're not best of both worlds, but it's honoring the past kind of. I don't know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. James, I mean, so James and I mentioned, James and I both had the benefit of studying as, as graduate students with Peter Satius. And, you know, Dan talked about the big six concepts that, that Satius conceptualized and put together. He'd be the first one to say he didn't invent them. He just like coalesced them. He just synthesized them. 
But one of the ways I love thinking about these concepts is, yes, they're things to know. Yes, they're things that students can use, they're portals into it. But each of them identifies a problem in doing history, right? And, you know, the problem of sign historical significance. Well, what's significant to learn about? What should, of all the stuff that happened in the past, what should we learn about? Teachers have to answer this question all the time. Curriculum developers have to write this question. Our contention with this article really is that presentism is a concept and it's a problem. It highlights a problem. Hey, we're living in the present. We're trying to study the past. We're trying to make sense of the past to orient ourselves and guide our thinking in, in the present and future. But we've always got this gap. We've always got this problem of either the past is a foreign country or it's really similar, right? There's some ways that we would go into the past and we would recognize things, emotions, reactions to things, agency, whatever. We'd go, oh yeah, of course I got it. But there's other stuff that we'd be dumbfounded by, right? And so I think that's, you know, again, that's the sort of nuance. And what we don't know is we don't know how students think about it yet. There's been so little research, but we would say this is a problem that I would introduce to students. Like, hey, here's, rather than say, don't do it, hey, here's this problem and here's the different ways of sort of thinking about it. And here's how we're, here's a problem that you're going to have to solve and, and, and think through and arrive at some sort of conclusion, but not leaving presentism as this unexplored idea. And I think part of that work of reflexive presentism, and I, and I can't remember who, we didn't coin that term. I think it was Ed, Ed Yonker, <laughs> who was so maybe the person who uses it. But I think it's about, you know, when we're asking students to contextualize something in the past and to sort of put it, you know, on its own terms and understand what was going on at the time and how people believed and thought, we're never really thinking about asking students or we're rarely asking them to sort of contextualize the present and why we're asking these questions now and how these two different contexts sort of are in relationship to each other constantly, right? And I think too, it helps us by trying to contextualize the present. It might help us realize that, well, the present's really complex and there's not like one, this is the present and this is what everyone believed and everyone stood for, right? Just as we can't go to the past and say, well, everyone in the 1800s was racist. They all believed this. They all thought this about this, you know, like people were complex and society was just as complex as it is now. So how do we sort of merge those two and try and think about the horizon between the past and the present and going back and forth and, and not thinking that sort of a contextualization process helps us, you know, to get around that problem somehow. This, this would lead to much more productive discussions when, when people wanted to change the names of schools, right? This reflexive presentism. That's better because the strategy I had come up with was just accusing people in the past of not being futurists, which they should have anticipated this was going to happen. Quit blaming me for not thinking about them. Time goes both ways, right? Uh, so I think your idea is a lot better than that. <laughs> so for, for researchers, scholars, and classroom teachers trying to figure out how they address this concept of presentism, what advice do you two have? Beware, you know, <laughs> to get caught in the quicksand of it. You know, we always joked all the time, we use the sort of the line from the Royal Tenenbaums where, where you know, everyone knows that presentism is bad. What does not, what this article presupposes, maybe it isn't, you know, and that's kind of what we're raising to, you know, for teachers and researchers to really think about is, you know, let's stop and unpack this with students and let's use this as something, not as a, just a thing that we all assume about the discipline. It reminds me of that age old quote, you know, and this one's going from the top flight intellectual of Yogi Berra, I think it, right? It's not, it's not what we don't know that's a problem, it's what we know for sure that just isn't true. 
And so this approach is a good chance for us to rethink presentism in the sense of we've always used this as this idea to do these things. Well, what do we actually mean when we use it? And in what ways is it really problematic for history? In what ways isn't it? Because I think we could all decide that there's about five or six ways that presentism is like, yes, absolutely. This is, it's, it's just assumed to be part of what we do in the history classroom. But there's a few other areas that would be like, okay, this is an area that we need to handle with care a little bit. How do we how do we try and understand, you know, when we're dealing with these debates about taking down a statue or these debates about changing a school name? When someone says, if you were to be criticized, say it's a presentist idea, to, saying that to a student, how would you respond? Is it presentism to remove a statue? Right? Well, wait a second. The people, the same audience that I was talking to the other night, they understand. So if I said to them, hey, are you going to write one history of Canada of all time and that's going to be it? Like you're going to write it in stone and you're just going to leave it? They say, no, no. Well, we rewrite history all the time. Well, why? Oh, because society's changing and our values are changing. Sometimes new evidence emerges, sometimes new frameworks or ways of thinking about the past change or we ask different questions about the past or whatever else. So we're constantly writing new history. Well, that's sort of the same thing that we're doing with these statues. We're saying that someone created this at some time. They thought this was someone, something to be lauded and commemorated. And now we're saying maybe not so much anymore, right? And is that presentist to do that? I don't know. I don't think that it is as long as students are really thinking. And I also, one point I try to always make with, is it's not just history. When we put up monuments to people and name things after people, that's not a like 500 page history textbook on a topic that is a memorial or an honor that is gifted because of our values. Right. And so distinguishing between those two things, like we're not, you don't erase history when you take down a statue of someone that doesn't represent your city, right? My city, the only statue we had in our downtown square was a Confederate one. And so the question yeah. is, is that the primary and only thing we value? Um, and so this distinction between history and memorials and honoring and, and historical memory is, is such a fascinating thing that sometimes gets flattened. Yeah, well, we talked to, when we talk about it and the research that I've been doing lately is we talk about statues or even a school name, their narratives, their interpretations of the past. And they were created after the event occurred, their secondary sources, and they were created for a specific purpose. And so we can historicize though, we can investigate those and the students can understand, oh, wait a second. That statue was created by the daughters of the, you know, Confederacy or whatever else, 50 years after the end of the Civil War. Oh, wait a second. Well, we're going to reinterpret this now. We're, we're going to interpret history. We're going to change the narrative. And, you know, people struggle with that. And, and one point I just want to add is in terms of sort of what's next and, and where we want to take this is like, there's a lot of questions we, we don't know the answer to, you know, and I think a lot of research in history education has made some assumptions about presentism that I think we really need to challenge. And I think one of those assumptions is that, you know, presentism is bad, you know, and we're saying, well, it's more complex than that. Another assumption is that presentism is a natural way that students think right, that, that we have to sort of challenge them to think as a historicist or contextualize, and they just naturally fall into this presentist mode of thinking. And we don't really know, I think, I don't think we really know if that's the case or not. And are there ways to sort of develop students' presentist thinking to have more sort of complex or sophisticated ways of using presentism? You know, how do we help students avoid sort of the more harmful or unproductive aspects of presentism, but also embrace the sort of useful concepts or useful useful aspects of presentism. And so that's something we really need to sort of spend more time thinking about.
Well, James Miles and Lindsey Gibson, thank you so much for giving us a lot to chew on, both past, present, and future, Michael. Appreciate you. I guess Thanks that's three. Much. I don't know why I said both. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I feel like it's it's a little presentist of you to speak for past, Michael. He's already had his time. That's true. That's true. Maybe my only focus was present and future. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you or your work online? I would say the easiest place to find me online is on Twitter, and it's at LS underscore Gibson is my Twitter handle. I'm also on Twitter, though I don't tweet very much. It's James underscore underscore Miles. <laughs> and if for my <laughs> scholarly work, probably Google Scholar is the easiest place to find those. We will be sure to get both of your Twitter accounts as long as Twitter is still an existing uh, social media platform. We'll see. If in the f- future, if that seemed somewhere we still spend our time. But thank you so much both for joining us today. We certainly do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up. We're on the Twitter, too, at uh, Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, why haven't you? Subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And the last, even Uber Eats, the last several Christmases, I've asked the presentist for a five-star review. (laughs) I haven't gotten one yet. Actually, we do have quite a few, and we're going to read all of them on the air. That may just be one long episode where we read them all on the air. We would also like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. I am still on Twitter, so you can find me there. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm Living La Vida Loca. Until next time, this is the Vision. That's not my Twitter handle. Just so we're, I'm sorry. Just so everyone's clear. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) This is Vision of Education Podcast. Signing off. I don't, that was, that's an ending. (laughs) 